Today's episode is brought to you by Esther's Fabrics. Esther's Fabrics is located on Bainbridge Island, just a short ferry ride from Seattle. Since 1959, Esther's has offered old-fashioned service with a modern sensibility. They offer a range of sewing and crafting supplies, including modern quilting cottons, gorgeous apparel fabric, knitting yarns, and embroidery supplies, and more. They buy what they love and what they think you'll love too. Esther's is also online at esthersfabrics.com. Thank you so much, Esther's Fabrics. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 187 of the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business, stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we are talking about building a career, bringing people together through yarn with my guest, Shelly Brander. After a successful career as a copywriter and broadcast producer, creating campaigns for brands like AT&T and Hard Rock, Shelly Brander followed her passion and started an improbable side hustle. She opened a local yarn store. She and her team of Loops Troops have since grown Loops into a global brand that's on the forefront of the modern maker movement and includes loopslove.com and loopsclub.com and KnitStars, a global online learning adventure. She is on a mission to knit the world together. Her second book, Move the Needle, Yarns from an Unlikely Entrepreneur, is a Wall Street Journal bestseller. She lives in Tulsa with her husband and at least three dogs and has three very creative grown children. Shelly Brander, welcome. Hi, Abby. It's so great to be here. Congrats on your 187th episode. (laughs) Yes, I know. I've been doing this for a little while now, I feel like. Terrific. (laughs) Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Um, Yeah, it's great to talk to you. I really enjoyed Move the Needle. It's a great book and one that I will recommend going forward for crafty entrepreneurs um, because you really do get real and kind of down and dirty, especially with talking about the ups and downs of starting your business and living a creative life. And um, I really appreciate all that you sort of um, reveal in this book. So it's really a great great book for entrepreneurs to read. Um, And I would love it if you would talk a little bit um, about kind of the first time that you encountered a local yarn shop, because I love this story. You were um, a teenager, and I think it's kind of something that almost all of us can relate to being on a road trip with your family. Yeah, um, I was with my my parents and my younger sister, my annoying younger sister at the time, on a very long road trip. We were going to look at colleges up the East Coast, actually, and we decided to do a big road trip. And um, we went, we landed in North Carolina, which was my first time there. It was a beautiful, beautiful place. Actually, my my youngest daughter goes to school there now. And I was so bored out of my mind at that point in the road trip, right? I mean, I think we'd been on the road, I don't remember, 18 hours maybe. And my mom had, we, we stopped by to see a friend, friends of my parents. And it just so happened that the woman owned a yarn shop. And so we went to go see her yarn shop. And I had zero interest in knitting at that time. It had never crossed my mind. But I was so bored that I would have done pretty much anything at that point in the in the drive. And so I walked into that yarn shop and I I really wasn't all that interested right off the bat by, you know, the things that were on display, but she convinced me to, to learn. And she put the, the needles and the yarn in my hands and kind of took me through the motions. And at first I wasn't that interested, but as I watched the 
fabric start to form in front of me out of nothing, I was just immediately hooked, just, just mesmerized and hooked as anybody who's ever learned in it probably can relate to. And so from that point on, um, I, you know, we went on our way on, on the car ride, you know, we had to continue the trip. And so I didn't have any resources to help me, but my very first project I decided to make was a cable sweater. So, you know, we start, most people start with scarves, easy garter stitch scarves, but I decided I wanted to make a cable sweater. And, and the woman, her name was Sylvia. She tried to talk me out of it, but I was determined that that's what I was going to make. And I did finish that cable sweater, but I still to this day call it my orangutan sweater because it has sleeves that are like 10 inches too long. <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing, but, but I was immediately, um, just, mesmerized and hooked by the process process of knitting itself and I kept knitting from that day forward I never stopped knitting and that was when I was like I said 16 years old so and did you know any knitters I mean this was probably in the 80s I want to say yes it was in the mid 80s I didn't know any knitters I um when I got back to Tulsa I looked around for stores there was one tiny little shop and that was owned by um, a couple of ladies in their 80s. Um, and I would pop in there from time to time. But again, couldn't really, it wasn't very relatable. They didn't have, you know, a lot of things I wanted to make. But they, they were super helpful. Um, but their hours were really wonky, too. They were, they were open like six hours a week or something. Um, but as I went along, I started asking around um, with my mom's friends. And I found out that one of my fr- mom's friends could knit. And she became my go-to for those late night, oh, crud, I just dropped a stitch, you know, calls. And her name was Barbie. And eventually her daughter, Christy, also learned to knit, who was one of my good friends growing up. And and we would bounce things off each other. But it was still, for the most part, a very isolating experience for me. Like, I just never really got plugged into any kind of community that, you know, of other people who wanted to make modern designs, you know, fashion forward, you know, teenage knitters who wanted to, you know, look trendy. And, and also I lived in Oklahoma and I really struggled to find any kind of yarns that weren't like hot, itchy, scratchy, you know, the more raw kinds of wool and and acrylic that were prevalent at that, at that point in time. Right. And so it was a very isolated experience for many, many years for me. Yeah. yeah. But um but a couple of things. I mean, one is that you you did take on a pretty ambitious project and two, you didn't abandon it, which I think are really interesting um sort of revelatory things about your personality. <laughs> um because, you know, some people would say, well, that project is too complicated. Um I can see in this woman's face like that I should not take on a cable sweater. And two, <laughs> like, okay, this is actually harder than I thought. She was probably right and I'm just gonna give up now and maybe make a hat or something like that (laughs) but you but you kept going so that's yeah yeah, interesting it was it's it's interesting you use the word revelatory because that the process of writing the book itself was very revelatory for me especially the very beginning the first thing I did was mind map it I I basically mind map my whole journey my whole life um, on on a piece of paper I'm very visual and it helped me to sort of draw it out and what I kept seeing was any time in my life that some someone said that I can't do something, it was the fuel for me that made me dig in. And so I'm pretty sure that when Sylvia told me that I can't make a cable sweater, that that's what convinced me I would be making a cable sweater. Right. <laughs> so. Yeah. And you start off the book with this really, I mean, I, I think adorable story about going um, to get the mail. Uh, so tell us that one too, because that's a great story. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of, it really is my earliest memory and it's all around the word can't. Um, so, uh, again, I was bored. I was bored a lot as a child. Um, I was, I was about four years old and, um, I, I was at home bored and I heard my mom getting ready to go to the grocery store. And I asked if I could go with her because I just wanted to get out of the house. And she told me no, because she was just going to do a really quick trip to the store. And I, I begged her and she just said, no, you can't go. And so she left. And so I went to my dad. I guess I formulated a plan pretty quickly in my little four-year-old head. And I went and found my dad and I asked him if I could go get the mail. And he said, okay. He kind of really didn't pay much attention. He was kind of looking at his newspaper. And so I went and got my tricycle and I rode out to the curb and got the mail and kind of tucked it under my arm. 
And then I kept on writing and I had to go down, turn a few on a few blocks and I had to cross a major, really what is a, a major street or highway in my, in Tulsa. And I crossed it on my tricycle in rush hour traffic. And, um, <laughs> I was headed up against traffic on the tricycle, almost to the grocery store. And my mom was driving back already cause it was a quick trip. And she, <laughs> she said to herself, Oh my gosh, who would let their child out on a tricycle on the highway? And then she, re- she was like, Hey, that kind of looks like Shelly. And then she realized it was me and, um, pulled over, stuck me in the car, drove me back home. As you can imagine, my dad was in a little bit of trouble because he was supposed to be watching me. And, um, he, I was in so much trouble. He didn't even take time to bring me inside. He pulled a, a branch off the tree and, and spanked me with it. Again, this was, this was the stuff. 70s, yeah, early <laughs> right? 70s, right? right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I remember it, but I also remember a real sense of accomplishment. Like she told me I can't, but I found a, I found a way to do it. Right. right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was, it was, uh, yeah, it has, it has its ups and downs, but on balance, I think I was glad that I had done it. Right. So, right. Yeah. Totally. And it's stuck <laughs> and it's stuck with you. And I, again, I think those very interesting things about your personality and, and being a mother now of three kids. And I know you're also a mother of three kids. Um, one thing that I have found to be very true is they are who they are from the moment they come out into this world. <laughs> and so there is no doubt in my mind that that is just who you are and who you were then is who you are now. So I just thought those are such interesting things to read about you, not having ever met you before, but then seeing what businesses you've built. So um, I thought those were yeah. great. Yeah, great stories. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I wasn't sure, you know, when I when I first decided to write the book, which I didn't even have a book on my radar, it was kind of funny how it came up. But um, and I can tell that story too. But when I first decided to write the book, I I was just thinking I want to get my life story down. I wasn't sure exactly um, where it was going to go. And when when Hay House, um, when we contracted with Hay House, they were at first thinking it would be just a straight memoir. And as we went along, we realized it would be a better fit in their business imprint because it would have more impact on on people that are thinking about starting or or growing a creative business. Um, But that there were a lot of points where I. I kind of stopped and said, how personal do I want to get with this book? Right? Like how, how much do I want to reveal? And I, I think ultimately, um, I'm really glad that it, that I decided to just put it all out there because I think there's business books out there and other books, biographies that, that tend to kind of gloss over the challenges. And then if you embark on, on the path and you hit that challenge, you know, that it's, it's easy to quit. And to think it's it's not going to happen, you know, like oh, this should be easier than it is, right? This must not be meant to be because it's I'm hitting these these challenges. So I decided to be really transparent so that people would know, you know, um, it's okay. Like you're gonna you're gonna run into those challenges and you can push through them and you can pivot, right? Yeah, absolutely. And you've had so many interesting pivots. And I know like you, you had wanted to be a writer for, for a while and, and found copy, copywriting and, and branding as, as a, a career. So talk a little bit about that portion of your life, the sort of pre yarn entrepreneur part yeah. of your, of your career. Yeah. And before coming full circle to writing, writing books. Um, yeah. So I did always know that I loved writing. I loved, I loved especially just telling stories and particularly stories that about people and, and businesses and like, that's what intrigued me. And so at first I thought I wanted to be a journalist cause I was just the natural, the natural thing. If you were going to be a writer and try to make a living at it. And I, I, my very first job was working in what they called the morgue of the newspaper before they, before they switched to digital storing files digitally, they would actually cut up the whole newspaper every single day and file it. And um, I got, I, I was really lucky. I think my English teacher at the time had a side gig at working at the morgue at our local newspaper. And he, he said he would get me an intern or help me get an internship. And so the thing is about that job, the greatest gift of that job is that I would, I would schlep these envelopes of files down to the newsroom and I had this perception that journalists were living this really glamorous life where every day was different and they were, you know, all out 
meeting people and writing and telling stories. And the reality was they were, they were sitting at computers all day long, you know, slurping coffee and not, it didn't look very dynamic from my perspective. I got to see like at least the, the daily paper, um, and what that was like. And I realized at that point, okay, I don't think this is it for me. I think this, this might be too much, too, too much drudgery. It wasn't what I thought it would be. And so I started thinking about other options for, for writing careers. And I happened to go to, uh, like a little local, it was called camp enterprise. It was a little sort of symposium for high school students about different careers and everybody that spoke at this thing, it was super, super boring. But this one guy got up and spoke and he was an advertising copywriter and he was so dynamic and fun. And, uh, his presentation, you know, he talked about how every day was so different because you get to learn about all kinds of different businesses and you get to dive deep into what their customers, you know, need and want. And, and it, ne- it just never gets boring, never a boring day. Well, that, that hit me, you know? And so I decided I wanted to be a copywriter. I started doing internships really early on cause I, I wanted to make sure that's what I wanted to do. <laughs> and so I did a lot, a lot of different internships with different companies throughout college and then was able to get a job as a writer right out of school, which was a pretty big deal in the 80s. I think at the time I was the only person in my I had an advertising degree, but nobody was getting jobs. They, maybe maybe they'd get to work as like a junior, junior, junior account executive or something. Right. Um, or just an intern. So I was pretty excited. I got I got what was the perfect job for me at that time, which was working for a really hot creative shop in Tulsa um, with a guy that is a legendary creative director. And, and I mean, he threw me right, right in with the sharks and I got to really, truly, you know, work on real projects from the start. So I I did love that. I mean, that career was fantastic in many, many ways for, for a long, long time. And I met my husband who's a graphic designer and we became a creative team working together. I was a writer who's a designer. We would, that's how it works in a lot of agencies. You know, you partner up with um, the visual and the, and the word person. And, and eventually we started our own agency and got married. And so it really did look like the dream to anybody that was interested, you know, it it looked like the dream um, trajectory for a copywriter. And it was, it was great. It, it, um, it helped us, you know, it it helped support us um, for many, many years. And it was fun. I love telling what we became known for was, was storytelling and especially like, like testimonial style TV commercials, but they were really, they, they weren't the fake, you know, you can tell the difference between a fake testimonial and a real testimonial. So I got pretty good at at getting to know the people that we were interviewing and pulling out their real, you know, thoughts, emotions, and stories. I'm I'm wondering if through that experience, um, you came to understand something that you later applied. And of course, we're going to talk all about Knit Stars later. But, um, but when it did come time later to create Knit Stars, that you were able to, to do that because you had done this first. In other words, because you knew you could hire a videographer, you could, you could create, you know, you had, you had had all of this experience creating these um, commercials and things like that. And, and somebody else maybe who hadn't would have thought, oh, that's impossible, or would just wouldn't have had the vision for it because they hadn't maybe had those years of experience doing that. What do you think about that? Very much so, um, because we, like you said, when we talk about NetStars, I can explain how that all came about. But when I first heard the idea, I, I immediately said no, because I couldn't imagine taking on anything else at that point in my life. But what kept, kept, you know, whispering in my ear was that the ability to take the part that I really loved about the branding, which was, you know, really connecting with people through their stories and helping inspire other people through true stories, right? And, and that, that, that had a big appeal for me. I thought I had left branding in the rear view, right. Other than doing branding for loops, you know, which was fun for me, but I thought I was done with that. By the time I finally was able to close that business down, I was ready to not do it anymore. But knit stars did let me take the best of that experience and come Um, back. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And that was, that was really intriguing. Yeah. I just think that was that like, 
experience that understanding and knowledge base must have played a role for you that had you not had it, maybe it never would have manifested. So so in- sure. Yeah. Sure. So interesting. Yeah. And that 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 is the thing to me that is is most interesting about all of this is it's such a crazy journey when you do look in the rear view. But I love that quote from Steve Jobs that you can only connect the dot. You can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backward. And I, I look back and I and I I know now that it all fits together perfectly like a puzzle, but at the time. No, you can't it, see it, it at all. Like, yeah. yeah. And you're like, why? Yeah. Why am I in this job? Why am I doing this? And, exactly. and stumbling why? and having yeah. these difficulties. And, and um, yeah, it's, it is so, so interesting. So for listeners out there who are like stuck or whatever, just know maybe later that dot will connect to something else. You exactly. just don't know. It is so. And I think especially yeah. when it's the thing that keeps whispering in your ear. It's that thing that keeps nagging at you that you feel like you should try and it doesn't really make sense. Those are the things I think you really have to listen to, you know, because I think that's the stuff that's really coming from your heart or from the universe or whatever you think, you know, those are the, those are the moments that, that you really should tune in and listen to. And it's hard in, as in our busy world, right? It's really hard to be able to take time to sit with those things and explore them, right? We tend to push them away and keep going with our normal to-do list. And um, that's a big message really of the book is um, I want people to take a moment and, and think about those things, you know, give themselves time to dream a little bit and to explore those things that they keep pushing to the back of their mind. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I love that. That's so, so true too. To hear from our sponsor, Esther's Fabrics, and the owner of Esther's Fabrics, Susan Scalek. I'm Susan Scalek, and I'm the owner of Esther's Fabrics. And what is Esther's Fabrics? We are a small sewing and craft shop located on Bainbridge Island, Washington, and we have modern quilting fabric, um, garment and apparel fabric, and independent patterns, and lots of buttons and ribbons, and embroidery supplies, and some knitting supplies. And how did you come to own this store? Okay. Well, my children were getting older. I had been home taking care of them after a different career, and I love to sew. And the shop went up for sale, and I talked to my husband, and he was kind of taken aback. And then thought about it, and he said, okay, let's just go for it. So I bought the store, and I've had it for four and a half years, and it's been a really fun um adventure to get to know everybody around the store, uh, around the island and to, um, you know, just experience owning a retail store, which I'd never done before. Yeah. And kind of what is your favorite part of sewing? I actually do love garments a lot. Um, so I've been sewing garments since I was in college and just really enjoy the whole pattern making process um, and putting them all together and going from 2D to 3D because I'm a mechanical engineer and I'm sort of geeky into that. That's awesome. And um, I know you offer classes at the store, you know, when things are not shut down for COVID, correct? Yes, we do. Yeah, right now we're, yeah, shut down for COVID. But normally we we have introduction to sewing classes, introduction to garment sewing. We have a long arm quilting machine that we have that we rent time on that people can learn how to use. So we have lots of different offerings. That's wonderful. And um, how can people find the store if they, I I guess it's on Bainbridge Island, right? It's a pretty small place. Yep. So on Bainbridge Island, right off the main street. And we're also online at esthersfabrics.com. And I understand you have a discount code to share as well. Yes. Um, Alliance, all caps, and you'll get 15% off for the month of February. Wow, that's fabulous. So thank you so much, Susan. This is just terrific. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much, Esther's Fabrics. And now back to my conversation with Shelly. So, okay. So you were um, with your husband in this agency seemingly very successful from the outside and and then you opened a yarn shop so tell us how that happened <laughs> yeah um it's, this is like one of my favorite stories so at that point um i had three kids under five and we have this booming agency it was at probably the, the heyday the height of it 
And I did have a good local yarn store at that point. It was owned by a woman named Jan. She was very kind. And um, her, her, the aesthetic of the store wasn't like my dream aesthetic of a store. It was what a lot of people typically think of. It was a lot of, you know, wool, acrylic, and more traditional um, designs. But she was really sweet about special ordering for me. She would order cotton yarns or, you know, other kinds of fiber and, and work with me to help find patterns. Well, one day I went in to see Jan and I was usually the only person under, you know, 70 in the store, but, um, I went in to see her and she, um, she said she was going to retire. And I was so dismayed (laughs) at that. She said her husband was retiring and they were going to move to Greece. And she said, you know, you have so much energy. You should start a yarn shop. And I actually laughed out loud at her. And I said, I've got three kids under five. I have a, a child with special needs. I've got an ad agency. Like, there's no way that's crazy. She's like, well, you know, just, just think about it. Like, I just think you'd be really good at it. I said, okay. So that was one of those things that it just came out of the blue and it wouldn't go away from me. It just kept nagging at me and nagging at me. And so the dream started to form even as I went ahead with my normal life. So I decided okay, maybe I'll try and write a business plan and see if I can get a lease deal at this, um, the, the nicest shopping center in town is called Utica Square in Tulsa. And I was like, if I were going to do it, I'd want, I'd want to have it there. But I didn't know how to write a business plan. I, I had no business. My degree was in journalism. You know, I had no business classes or anything. So I thought, who do I know who might help me with this? And I had a, one of the kids in my one of my kids in preschool one of their friends had a dad who worked for an oil company who I knew had an MBA so we went out and I bought him sushi and he told me uh, he helped me write a business plan and um, as it turned out since he was in the oil business the guy that owned Utica Square was a billionaire oil baron who the Utica Square was his little side thing you know just his little fun thing and so um, I, I wrote the business plan up. I got the blessing of my friend and I submitted it to Utica Square. And I immediately got a no. And they said, we don't have any space available. And I would drive to Utica Square and I could see, I could see there was space available, right? There, was, there were banners hanging in windows that the space was available, but they kept telling me no. And I, at first I was like, okay, well, I tried, you know, maybe it's not meant to be. But I kept calling every month to just check in and see if they had space available. And the answer was always no. But Mr. Mr. Helmrich was his name. He was intrigued, but, you know, they just didn't have a good space available. And so two years actually went by. And I was calling every month. And I finally said, okay, I'm going to give this one last shot. And then I'm going to put it to bed. I'm not going not gonna to keep trying and torturing myself. So I ordered cashmere yarn from a place in New York City because there was nowhere to get cashmere in Tulsa. And I knew it had to be really nice if I were going to make something for Mr. Helmrich. So I, I made a cable scarf for him out of cashmere, the kind of scarf I envisioned that the billionaire oil guy would wear. <laughs> <laughs> and I wrapped it up really cute. And I wrote this letter about how I envisioned this more modern yarn store that was going to grow into, I wanted to franchise it and it, I wanted it to start in Utica Square. It needed to be in Utica Square. And I, I stalked him a little bit. I found out where he lived, and he lived in this high-rise condominium. And I dropped my package off with the letter on Christmas Eve. This was 2004. And the day after New Year's, I got a call, and I got the lease offer to, to do it. So the scarf worked. And I didn't know his wife was a knitter. And so there was a connection there. Uh, but the scarf was what did it. And then... I had, then I freaked out because then I had to actually create a yarn store. I had like four months, I think, to figure it out and and open the store. Right. But see, he told you no. So then it was like you had to. Exactly. (laughs) You can't be in Utica Square, right? Right, right. Exactly. So that was it. (laughs) Yeah. And, and so, um, I, I loved, um, well, I'm, I'm really, you know, I'm like an industry person and I, I, I really enjoyed the, the, the sort of stories you tell about meeting with yarn reps when you first started and, um, and these incredibly long meetings and sort of discovering the way that yarn was sold. And um, I just thought that was really interesting. And very few people write about 
I feel like right about that. And um, so I really appreciated that honesty <laughs> about how you how you started talking to yarn reps differently um, because they would kind of come in with their big chunks of yarn and give you these sort of sales pitches and um, and and sales pitches for things that you weren't going to buy or just you didn't need to hear and listen to. And so you started really talking to them about their life on the road and um, really being empathetic toward them and with them and, and kind of changing the, the relationship that you had with them. And I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about, about that process of buying yarn when you first started. Yeah, it was, it was really, really overwhelming because again, I, I had never encountered that kind of thing. And, and I was honestly shocked because I, here I'd been working in advertising. So a pretty fast moving modern business. And I was really shocked at how the yarn business seemed to be kind of stuck back in that, that 1950s traveling salesperson role, you know, that seemed to be the model. And I was really, I I was surprised that they would come in and, and many times they would talk about how, how they weren't very well equipped or supported by the parent company. And they'd kind of, um, they sort of go through their same routine and kind of have a spiel they would go through with every single um every single yarn shop no matter what how the what the aesthetic of the shop was or or anything and then I learned too that there are a couple big powerhouse distributors or at least there were at that point um the world the yarn world changes all the time right now you know is is the focus right now is more with the indie dyers but but at the time there were some really big ones that really controlled the market and there were these really heavy-handed sales tactics they would use you know it's like oh so-and-so shop down the street just bought three bags of this it's like they all use the same the same lines and I just it was more of a it wasn't a super intentional thing it was just more the way that I like to deal with people that we I just started digging deeper and trying to understand more about where the where they were coming from what their life was like I mean the grind of some of these people would cover 10 states and I mean they never are not on the road you know and I started to, I realized that if we could connect better and I could help them and I understood what their goals were for, for the meetings that we would have, then they would start to listen to me about what my goals for the store were. And it would save a whole lot of time because instead of going through the whole spiel, they could focus in on the kinds of, they could start to kind of curate for me and we could go deeper with the things that I really was interested in ordering and then at the end of the meeting, um, you know, we would both feel good about it <laughs> instead of feeling like we're both exhausted and we didn't really accomplish much. And um, and then I learned, I mean, they would tell me, you know, like, gosh, when I caught, when I, thank you for taking my call. Thank you for taking my email. So many yarn shop owners will never call me back or respond. And, and I thought, oh, wow, I, I understood that from the shop owner's perspective, because there's you're so busy as a shop owner, right? It's it's you're so swamped all the time wearing all the hats. But I thought in business, you know, you reply to people, you know, you don't leave them hanging and they'd be trying to form their itinerary for their trip and and see how many shops they could visit and they had goals to meet. And without hearing back from people, they could never they could never put it together. I mean, I just really felt for them. And as I started, some of them, I, it was impossible to ever form relationships because they were just determined to stick to the script, you know, um, and kind of phone it in. But, but, the, but the good ones, you know, I formed really strong relationships with them. And, and there's a, there's a line, I have a friend named Melinda who's in a completely different business, but she told me a story one time about her dad who was a traveling salesman in the fifties, right? That was his, his, um, his career. And he taught her that at the end of every meeting, he would always ask, is this a good deal for you? And he said, because sometimes he was dealing with, um, with people that were really in a desperate situation and would have done, worked any deal to be able to, um, to subsist. Right. But that you wouldn't keep a relationship that way. Like you might make a quick sale, but you wouldn't, have a long-term relationship unless it was really a good deal for both parties. And that one really stuck with me. And that was sort of my philosophy. And it still is today in any kind of relationship in business or otherwise, but especially with collaborations that you, that you check in at the end of the meeting and make sure it's a good deal for both of you. Because 
at the end of the day, it really is about the relationships. And if I had sort of followed the formula or just not ever grown those relationships with some of those yarn reps, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have, you know, grown as fast or as well, um, with the shop. So that was a little bit of a rambling answer, but no, hopefully that's great. Yeah, that's helpful. And yeah. can you talk a little bit about this sort of organizational concept for loops, which was, or is still hot loops wall? Um, yeah. because I think that is a really interesting concept and maybe even could apply to other craft or, you know, even sewing or quilting stores too. And, and it's just such an interesting way to, to organize a store. Yeah, we, and, and this was my original, my original big idea for the store was when I would go into yarn shops, I would get really frustrated because I would spend hours looking for yarn and then try to match it to the project. And I couldn't find, you know, like I would many times leave empty handed. And so I wanted to create a section of the store and we call it the hot loops wall. It's trademarked, but the basic idea of it, yeah, could easily um, be applied to anything else. Um, And the idea is, okay, we're going to come up, we're going to curate X number of projects and we're going to have the yarn and the pattern and the photo of the finished project all together in one spot (laughs) so that everything you need for the project is right there. So that busy people, young moms, you know, people working, everybody's busy people can come in and quickly grab a project that they know is going to be successful, get the stuff they need, get the color they want and then head back out the door and not be stuck, you know, just wandering the aisles for hours. And I, the very first yarn rep that I met with, um, and I did have this marathon meeting I talk about in the book, it's like a two day meeting. Um, but I told him about this concept and he told me later, he said, I knew you were going to make it as a yarn shop just because you had an idea (laughs) because a lot of people start a craft business without really a plan. Right. And he, and I was like, really? He said, yeah, I knew you were going to make it. And he said, I think this wall's not going to make it. This wall's going to be gone after a year or two. It's way too much work, <laughs> but, but you're going to make it. And, and so that was kind of a cant that he put out in front of me. So I think right now we're planning our 31st hot loops wall. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it, it has become, you know, kind of an icon of the business, but it really comes back to thinking about what your customer needs, you know? Instead of organizing the shop one way because it's appealing to you, like maybe it's easiest for you or appealing to organize it by color or by gauge or whatever, or just however you want, you want to organize it, thinking through the actual customer experience and what's going to make it easier for them, you know, in this day and age when everybody's so busy, thinking through your whole, your whole audience, your whole customer base, not just like in my case, not just people that are retired and have a lot of time on their hands to do a hobby. You know, I'm like, I want to structure this in a way where people that have a full-time job and busy moms and, you know, busy people can also participate, even if they can't like hang out and knit all day long in the shop, you know? And so that's, you, that's I love, sense. yeah. And I love, I mean, I, cause as you've said, knitters by projects, not yarn. And I think that's an incredibly important concept. And it's not just for knitters. It's crafters, crafters by projects, not, you know, material or, or how supplies, whatever you would like to say. And I, and I think that's inc- just such an important thing. And, and that's not necessarily designers, <laughs> but we're talking mm-hmm. about the average craft consumer. And so, um, okay, so you had this shop, you expanded to two. And mm-hmm. then um, realized you'd overexpanded and needed to shut them both down and open one uh, halfway between. Mm-hmm. And that was very difficult. That was like the worst, the worst of times, um, because my again, my original intention was to franchise. So I thought well, this is perfect. I'll open a second store on the other side of town, and I'll take everything I've learned from the first shop, and then I'll build it out for more of a white box meaning, you know, an empty store design and create something that can be replicated as a franchise. And it was a disaster from the start. Um, the beginning, the very the first thing that happened was our point of sale system. They had told us they could combine both inventories online, like show both stores inventory online. 
But in reality, they couldn't. And we were too far in to change by the time we realized that. So we weren't able to grow online like we had hoped. The bigger thing was sort of the energy was divided between the two locations. So the the managers of the store started kind of warring with, with each other over who was going to get what yarn. And they were both and they were both named Gina. Yes, they were. And they were both lovely, lovely people, but it was, you know, we <laughs> yarn people understand. Like we, we all want the best yarn, right? So yeah, they they were kind of worrying. And then the customers, it became, you know, are you a South customer or a North customer? And it was just this whole North versus South. Wow. And yeah. for me, I was, I was, um, when I first announced I was going to have two stores, I got, it kind of elevated my, kind of elevated me a little bit in the industry when I'd always kind of struggled with this feeling of sort of less than, cause I was located in Tulsa and, and all the hot yarn shops seemed to be located more in like in, on the East coast or, you know, Pacific Northwest and California. And when, when I go to go to the yarn stores, I always felt kind of like, you know, redheaded stepchild. But when they heard I had two stores, it was like, Oh, what's she doing? This may be somebody, you know, so I kind of, it, it elevated, I felt a little more special within the industry. So the thought to me of losing that, of going back down to one store, to me, that would be the ultimate failure. Like my ego just, I was really struggling with it. It felt like going backwards. And to the point that I was really close to just hanging up the whole thing, I, w- I would, I really considered just closing the whole thing down and going back to branding and just putting it all, you know, in the past. And I, I waffled for a long time. And, um, what ultimately what happened was my, my late mother-in-law, um, told my husband, you know, you can't ever let her close that yarn shop. It makes her too happy. And I think that was the sort of a defining thing for both my husband and for me was like, okay, we need to find a way forward. And so I kind of, you know, took the pill, you know, (laughs) closed both of the stores and built out one new big store in between the two. And, and even though that was such a painful process in a lot of ways, we had to trim our staff down and, you know, like it it was really challenging. Um, the day we opened the store, um, the day we stayed up until like four in the morning, um, getting it all ready. And I went home, went to bed, only slept a couple hours, but I remember waking up and feeling more energized than I had in years, like this huge weight had been lifted. And I knew, 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 knew <laughs> that I was on the right path forward. Yeah. And it was literally a matter of months before everything just, just took off, you know? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so that's, it, it was pushing through that perceived failure, um, to the thing that, you know, to the right place. And, it's funny. We tell ourselves these stories that, you know, that's going to be going backwards and it's really going forward. Yeah, it is. Yeah, Yeah, totally. And then you saw these videos or a series of videos in the, in the middle or late in the evening one night about, um, about tennis. You like to play tennis. And so you were watching some tennis videos and, um, and their, their, their marketing, uh, structure, just appealed to you and, um, and kind of gave you a whole new, a whole new approach. Um, and, and sort of, it's so interesting, because sometimes I feel like it, it takes getting out of your own industry to be able to sort of have new perspective on what it is that you do. And it's so helpful to step outside and look at something completely different. So to talk about what what that was like, yeah, that is such a that's a, such a big takeaway. Uh, it's a really good one, Abby. Um, yeah, I'm a I'm a competitive tennis player. I yeah, I was up late night, probably worrying. <laughs> I was worrying ahead too because we opened our new store in fall, and fall is great in yarn. But I was worrying ahead to spring because spring and summer is always you know it's feast or famine, and um, so I had insomnia. And I was these. There were these tennis videos, and what intrigued me about it were they were really good videos with the Bryan brothers. And but there were a bunch of free videos, so it was free content that was really high quality. And I was drawn into them immediately. I watched through all of them, and then at the end of that, they made an offer to join like a tennis membership, an online instruction membership. And I was so intrigued by that because it just seemed really generous and smart to be able to actually experience the content first before you buy it. And so I, I emailed the guy, his name is Will Hamilton, um, and the, <laughs> the company's called Fuzzy Yellow Balls, 
And um, he didn't reply to me. But it was just a couple days later, one of my friends in the yarn business, Taiyu, who owns Koigu Yarn, it, my, Facebook told me that she liked the page of this guy named Jeff Walker. Maybe, maybe it was a couple weeks later because a little time passed and Will had never emailed me back. So, um, so I started watching this Jeff Walker guy's free videos and it was the same trajectory as the, as the tennis stuff. And I put it together like, uh, I think that tennis guy is using this Jeff Walker guy's like marketing methodology. And so I ended up buying Jeff's online course. It's called product launch formula. It was like $2,000 to, to buy the course. And at the time that was a huge, you know, investment. I had to talk it over with my husband. We had to like really think about it. We had to, you know, ratchet down our tent, our Christmas plans for our kids and stuff, you know, but I bought the course and I just assumed that when you buy an online course, you just do it all. I just, I didn't know that you don't do it all. Right. And like, I $2, <laughs> I'm going to do this course. So I set aside a week I, um, and I did the course and in doing it, I almost right away had the idea for loops club, which is our, um, like an entree. It was basically like the hot loops wall in the mail. So a curated project kit, which wasn't really a thing back then. Right. And, and so I launched that and this is back in, uh, 2014. Yes. Mm -hmm. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. About six years ago, a little over six years ago. And, um, so we put it together, kind of cobbled it together using some of the stuff and well, using Jeff's formula and, um, it, it, we, we launched it and it made $75,000 in a week. And that was enormous, obviously for, for a yarn shop owner, but more so I could see that it could solve the seasonality issue for us that it always plagued us, you know, where, um, if we were sending out kits on a monthly basis, even through the spring and summer, it would help even out, you know, the, the cash flow. And so that was really big. And, um, and so then, uh, we were packing Luke's club bags. I mean, I think we had, I don't remember in that first launch, maybe 700 people that signed up we were packing Luke's club bags. And, um, Jeff, I saw an email on my phone where Jeff was asking, um, if, if, if this formula has worked for you, make me a little video and we may make a case study about you. So I did it honestly, just feeling grateful in the moment that like for everything that that had done for my business, you know, and I ended up winning the case. They made a case study about me. Um, and Jeff sent his son, who's an amazing videographer to Tulsa to film, film a little, you know, film a story about me and, and with my family and everything. And then as part of all of that, they were going to play the video at a live event. I you know, Jeff would have these live events, obviously pre pre COVID, and I'd never been to a marketing event before, you know, but I went and they played my video up on the big screen and I was kind of feeling full of myself because people were like lining up to talk to me, you know, I was like, oh yeah, you know, feeling, feeling pretty special. There was this one girl, this one really quiet girl who was in line. And when, when she came to talk to me, she said, um, have you ever heard of the modern calligraphy summit? And I said, no, cause I wasn't into calligraphy. And she said, well, um, she said, I, I, I put on this summit. It's a pretty cool model. I'm wondering if we might be able to partner together and, um, you know, we can do one for knitting. And at first I didn't, I, like I said earlier, I said, no, it was like a flat no. Like there's no way I have time for that. But it did continue to sort of eat at me. And I started to think, yes, wouldn't it be cool if, wouldn't it be cool if number one, I could bring back, bring my production and storytelling, you know, together with my knitting world. Number two, uh, there wasn't great uh, online instruction at that point at all in knitting, right? There was very little. And um, I personally had always been really bummed that it was so hard to get the best teachers to Tulsa to teach. It was always such a struggle. And when I finally was able to, I realized how dramatically helpful it can be and how it can really change your whole craft life when you learn from one of these really great you know, genius instructors. Um, the first one to ever come to Tulsa was Lucy Neatby. And uh, it, it just blew my mind how much I learned, how much more confident I was in what I was doing. And just the community that formed around as, as everybody was learning from her. And so that, that was the other intriguing thing for me about the idea of this, this online summit was we could bring the best, bring that experience to everybody to everybody globally, right? 
um, to be able to make that accessible for so many more people than, than just the people that can go to Rhinebeck or just the people that live near, you know, Squam or whatever. Um, that was, that really was appealing to me. And she was your, your business partner at the start. And, and the thing is though, the, you did veer from the model of the calligraphy summit because you wanted, or you had the idea that you would actually go on site to each person's home and film them in their studio so that people at home, wherever they live, get that kind of voyeuristic experience of getting to peek at their yarn stash and see where they really work. And I mean, we all love that. And, um, you know, you're right that there, and also that you would do it in a very um, high production value way. Mm -hmm. And you're right that there were very few people or very few companies doing online instruction, number one, and very few, even fewer, who are doing it in that way. One that does come to mind for me is Creative Bug. I don't know Mm -hmm. if, I mean, I think they were around at that time. Was that at all on your radar? No, the only one that was really on my radar was Craftsy. And of course, in their model it, at the time, it was, um, they would bring studio. people into the studio. Yeah. Yeah. But Creative so. Bug wasn't even on your, oh, well, that's so interesting. Because I've always loved watching their little, um, like, two-minute sort of bio documentary pieces right before. Yes. Yeah. That, that, I've okay. seen some of them yeah. now in yeah. recent years, you know? Yeah. But, um, yeah. And then the other, again, just getting outside of this industry's masterclass, which I don't think existed when we started Knit Stars, or maybe started, like, right, shortly thereafter. Um, and, of course, the big difference there being, Masterclass is venture capital backed, right? Um, and and Craftsy, you know, of course, sold to NBC, and then now, you know, that right. whole evolution. Um, ours was always more, you know, homegrown, you know, grassroots kind of mom and pop, right? Is, and right? so Which, this this model is really different, and and it's so it's such an interesting model. So the way, so explain the way that it works from a consumer perspective, where you're buying really like a suite of classes, you own them. First of all, you own them all. And mm-hmm. you're getting from a whole a whole um, set of instructors at once. So sort of explain how for people who are like knit stars, I don't know how that works. Yeah, we call it an online festival. And it's very much modeled in a lot of ways, off, um, a, an in person festival experience. And um, yeah, so we do it in seasons. So we're, we're getting ready. We're producing right now our sixth season. So our sixth year. And so the, the very first one, we had eight instructors. We've had as many as 11 in a season, but people buy the whole experience. And what happens is they, they purchase it and then we produce it. We fly all around the world and produce all of them. Each star has their own workshop it's a whole series so you'll have that initial video that's like a documentary style that you were referring to and then you'll have actual instructional videos and it sort of builds on itself and every workshop's a little different they all teach different things but they tend to be um in each season we'll sort of have an overall theme that that pulls them together and they're not sequential so you can enter as a beginning knitter advanced knitter anything in between with any season and 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 learn and grow and because you do own it it's very aspirational, inspirational, right? You own it. You may not be ready for double knitting or vertically stranded knitting or some of these more advanced things, but you, you get empowered to know you get introduced to it and, and it's there for you when you're ready for it. Right. So, um, it, they, it costs around like the full price is $229. We have a couple of, we only sell it a couple times a year. We have an early bird launch in the spring where all the new stars announce that they're going to be teaching. And we, that price, um, is like one ninety nine typically. And then we'll have a second offering in the fall closer to when the actual event rolls out. And when it does roll out, it's over a period of two to three weeks. We release a new workshop every couple of days. Um, and you don't, it's not one of those things where you have to do the whole project in like, it wouldn't be possible, right. To do it all in real time. Um, but, but you can get introduced to everybody and, you know, kind of decide what you want to do, like what project you want to do first. And then it culminates in a couple of live Q and A's with all of the stars at the end, which is my favorite, um, where we all get on together and just talk about the season and what everybody's got coming up next and that kind of thing. So, uh, and like a supersonic zoom call <laughs> and we'll have thousands of people on 
on live and it's, those are always super fun. So there, um, at this point, there's a little over 12,000 knit stars owners around the world. Um, that first, that first time we offered it, um, back six years ago, we weren't thinking global. We were thinking maybe some people around the U S that don't have access will, will, will do this. And, um, the first person, when we opened that cart on that first season, the first person to buy it was from Singapore. And then the last person at the end of the sign up period was from Dubai and it hit us like, wow, there, you know, we, t- we tend to get a mindset about wherever we live. And I just, ca- I just been thinking about the U S and didn't really even think about the fact that there's people in Dubai and Australia and all around the world that won't ever get access to a Stephen West workshop or an Andrea Mowry. You know, they won't ever get a chance to learn from some of these people. This is the only way. And, and I think it's the best way because you own it. Um, so that was a, that was a big revelation to realize how global this could be. And, and so over time we developed this, this mission, our theme of knitting the world together of helping people around the world, recognize all of the different styles and traditions and possibilities with yarn and knitting, you know, and, and so that's where we are today. Okay. And, and you ended up, um, buying out your business partner. So you are mm-hmm. the full owner. And, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, I think people can kind of do the mental math, but, but knit stars is, is very profitable. Or we don't know profitable, but has, a, has, a, has, has high earning potential, shall we say. Yeah. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, as, and we don't know what loops, what loops is doing, how loops is doing, but we, but you have said in the book that, you know, um, uh, running a, a yarn shop, it, it is a, a much more of a struggle and that, you know, having the club has helped a lot as far as evening things out. But my my guess is that I, I, I do wonder in your mind, was there ever a thought of like, why do I have my yarn shop still? I mean, because it's a lot. It's like, that's a grind having having a club, a physical club, having a, um, having this video um, production um, situation going on here, which is very, um, really, really demanding, I am assuming, and then also having this yarn uh, shop. So um, have you that's really three, three things going on at once. Um, yeah, did it ever the e-commerce that goes along plus, with loops, right, loops right yeah, plus the, the e-commerce store? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, did it ever occur to you to say like, Oh, well, maybe I don't need this yarn shop anymore? Or, or what was the reasoning to keep it, I guess, is my question. Yeah, we've thought about that a lot. Trust me, we have thought about that a lot. Um, but I, and I, every, every arm of loops is self-sustaining at least. Right. But I think of the yarn shop as the heart and soul of the whole thing. And as time goes on, it becomes more of like a flagship, um, destination. I think that's our, that's how we envision it. There are people around the world who make like pilgrimages to loops, you know, to see the, the shop. And, um, it much like I, I, I've started to think of it more kind of like a lifestyle brand and this is like the face. And I think it's so important to keep that local yarn store vibe through everything we do that, that people can get, can know that they're talking to a knitter when they reach out to customer service, that they, they can still get help with drop stitches. They can, you know, like I just think that's really, really important. And yes, it could be profitable, more profitable overall if all we did was knit stars probably. Um, but it's about the whole experience. And I, much like with the ad, the ad agency that we never wanted to grow into a mega agency. We always wanted to stay connected and focused on our clients. It's the same with, um, with this. And I think that we have yarn associated with knit stars too. We have a huge program that supports the indie dyers as well. Um, and, and I just, I think at the end of the day, it's about connection and, and that tactile, like touch and feel that yarn, pet that yarn. Um, there's nothing quite like it. So we're leaning way into that actually in the next, in the next phase. Right. So yeah, that's I'm great. excited about it. I think that's <laughs> yeah. great. I think that's a great decision. So mm-hmm. congratulations on that. And, um, I want to, um, uh, make sure that we get to your list. But before we do, can you tell people where they can get the book um, and um, anything kind of cool associated with the book? Um, because I want to make sure people um, grab themselves a copy. 
For sure. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's available pretty much everywhere right now. Of course, it's on Amazon and, and Amazon really committed to a big order of the book. So I'm all for getting it from Amazon um, if that's your preference. Um, it's also on the shelves at a lot of Barnes and Nobles, Nobles around and Indigo in Canada um, and a lot of independent bookstores more and more are picking it up since it got the, what, the Wall Street Journal um, bestseller. That was a pretty, pretty awesome thing. Um, and we have a website that's theneedlebook.com that people can go to and they can put in their order number from wherever they got the book and get some extra bonuses. There's a, a book club guide and a find a mentor guide and a resource list of with links to like Jeff Walker's stuff and, and the key resources that I use and also some favorites like favorite knitting things that I use. And so there's, it's pretty much the, the bottom line is you can get it anywhere. And there's, there's a, um, there's for internationals. Um, I don't know how many international listeners you have, but I, I imagine quite a number. Um, there's a web, you can get it on international Amazon. Um, there's also a website and I'll give it to you later. I can't, it's not coming okay. to mind right now, but it, where people can order internationally without paying shipping, which Ooh, is nice. awesome. The shipping so can get so crazy. Yeah, we'll make sure to put that in the show notes. Yeah. That would be great. Yeah. So it's called sure. Move the Needle Yarns from an Unlikely Entrepreneur. So make sure um, you go pick that up. That's great. Thank you for telling us where to get those extras too. Um, sure. So that's awesome. And you wanted to recommend Felicity Ford's Bullet Journaling for Knitters online course. I have not checked this out. Yes, it is so cool. And her whole vibe, I just recently got introduced to her. She's amazing. She hurt her... her her website is knit sonic and she started with integrating like sound her she has this background in sound and audio stuff and integrating that with her knitting so that in itself is worth checking her out it's, i found out about her bullet journal course from the ladies at modern daily knitting and i hadn't done bullet journaling before but oh my gosh it's so fun and what i love about her approach is if you've ever done like scrapbooking or you know you can go way down a rabbit hole with that stuff and get where you're spending all your time journaling and yes. not and you can kind of get like uptight yeah. about it. Right. She has a very free flowing approach. She's like, I, I am an artist in my career. I don't want my journal to stress me out. So what, that's what I love about her approach. She makes it work for her. There's no pressure. There's no perfect palette. You know, it's very, very organic. And so, um, I am loving, I just finished the course actually, and, um, am loving that whole process. That's and I, the thing is, I think I've always had the planner that I've used for years is called passion planner and it's great, but you know how you have that stress about, tell me if this happens to you, you fill out a page in your journal, your printed journal, and then like five more days go by and you haven't done, you missed five days and then you feel guilty because you didn't do any, anything in your planner for five days. Right. So bullet journal frees you from that. Like if you do a day and then you don't get a chance to come back to it for two weeks, it's like there's no guilt. You just go to the next page. Mm -hmm. That's my thing about it. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, awesome. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. And um, I that's like great with, with blogging too. I always felt like if you just didn't do it, just come back in and no apologies. Just blog the next time and that's fine. Exactly. You don't have to worry about it. So exactly. um, that's great. Um, and you wanted to recommend Clinton Hill 100% Cashmere. Yes, Rebecca from Clinton Hill. I love her and I love everything she's doing. Um, I've got a sweater on my needles right now called the Vertical V. It's just a really nice 100% cashmere. And like I said, cashmere is close to my heart, as you know, from that story about the scarf for the, for the oil baron. Um, but she has a, a cashmere that's a really nice twist. So a lot of cashmere yarn, you know, it'll pill or won't really hold up in a garment over time. But it's got a really nice smooth twist on it. And um, I, it's just a really, it's great. And she has a great palette of colors. So Wonderful. I'm a big fan of her, her cashmere right now. That's yeah. great. And I know you're putting together season six of Knit Stars. So mm -hmm. that's exciting. People have that to look up, like look forward to. And do you have any dates ready for people to look toward or? So it's always a surprise. And we let the stars, the new stars for the upcoming season, lead off the announcement with a series of teaser posts on Instagram. Okay. But I would just say follow Knit Stars. It's at Knit Stars on Instagram. Okay. And just kind of keep your eye on Instagram for maybe late April-ish. Okay. And you'll see. You'll know because it's 10 stars 
talking about it all at once. All at once. Everybody goes a little bit wild. Right. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. so exciting, Shelley. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you. This has been so much fun. And you've been listening to the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today's episode was brought to you by Esther's Fabrics. Come on into Esther's Fabrics in person or online. They can supply you with all of your sewing needs, from quilting to garment sewing to hand sewing. They're online at esthersfabrics.com, on Instagram at esthersfabrics, and on Facebook. Throughout the month of February 2021, they're offering 15% off for Craft Industry Alliance podcast listeners with the discount code ALLIANCE. So check them out at esthersfabrics.com. Thank you so much, Esther's Fabrics. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals. And when you become a member of Craft Industry Alliance, you get in-depth coverage of craft industry news, the opportunity to connect with fellow professionals for advice and support, and access to an educational library filled with ideas, tools, and resources to help you as you build your business. Join us at craftindustryalliance.org. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.